Welcome back to Briefly, the podcast produced by the University of Chicago Law Review. I'm your host, Adam Hassanin. Today's episode is part two of our two-part series covering student speech rights. If you haven't yet, make sure to listen to the first part of the series where we speak to the individuals at the very heart of the Supreme Court's student speech cases and doctrine. We heard from John and Mary Beth Tinker, whose protest of the Vietnam War in 1965 led to the modern conception of student speech rights in Tinker v. Des Moines. We were joined by Matt Fraser, whose speech at the Student Election Assembly was found to be unprotected by the First Amendment due to its lewd and explicit nature in Bethel v. Fraser. Kathy Kohlmeyer then recounted the details behind the court's opinion in Hazelwood v. Kohlmeyer, where the court permitted the school principal to censor articles that Kathy and the rest of the school paper's editorial staff had diligently researched. And finally, Douglas Mertz, the attorney for Joseph Frederick in Morse v. Frederick, told us the story behind the infamous bong hits for Jesus case, where the court delivered a fractured and divided opinion to permit schools to regulate student speech that may be seen as promoting illicit drug use. This podcast will focus on the case before the Supreme Court this term. Mahanoy Area School District versus BL. With us today to help us navigate the student speech doctrine and the Mahanoy case is Emily Buss, the Mark and Barbara Freed Professor of Law at the University of Chicago Law School. We hope that you'll enjoy the season four finale of Briefly. Thank you so much for joining us, Professor Buss. My pleasure. Thanks for thanks for having me. It's a really interesting case. And we're excited to discuss it. But with that, let's jump right into the first question. As you know, this is part two of our series on student speech rights. And in the first episode, we covered the previous Supreme Court cases with Tinker, Fraser, Kuhlmeyer, and Morse. And the court's now sent to decide this BL case. But before we dive into the rest of the questions, could you talk to us a little bit about this case? What exactly happened? Sure. Okay, so the basic facts of the case is a student in high school who was on the cheer squad, started out on the JV, the junior varsity squad, and then the next year she was placed back on the junior varsity squad. She sort of had understood her expectation was after a year she'd be on the varsity squad, and she was made even more upset by the fact that one freshman went right to the varsity squad. So she was a very upset. She was upset about other things as well. She was playing on a, on a club softball team. That wasn't going as she wanted, and she was just generally upset with things. And on a Saturday, she's out shopping with her friends, and she posts a so this is a snap on her story, if I get to use the tra- terminology correctly. Uh, you know, she's raising her middle finger and she says, pardon the language, the full understanding of the facts. I'm not sure I can get this in the right order. I think it's fuck school, fuck cheer, fuck softball, fuck everything. Anyway, I know those are the four things that she used the expletive with. And she sends this out as, as a snap. And uh, she has like 250 followers, I think, something like that, of her you know, friends who see this. She does this on a Saturday. She does this from... You know, she's shopping. She's not on school grounds. It's not during the school day. It's certainly not during cheerleading practice. Some of the people who see it take a screenshot and share it. And they share it with the coaches. One of them has a mother who's one of the coaches on the cheerleading squad. And quickly, everybody on the cheerleading squad is aware of this. And they describe students who are somewhat upset. And they bring this up at practice. um, And there's some discussion at the school. And uh, the school punishes the student for the speech by saying one year off of the cheerleading squad. That's the punishment she gets. She's not suspended from school. She just gets, she gets kicked off the team. 
And uh, she and her parents filed an action arguing that that violated her First Amendment rights of speech, that she has a right to speak, that the speech was not on school grounds. It was totally independent of school. Therefore, the school had no authority to reach the speech, to regulate the speech. When the school district originally defended the speech, pointing to their authority to regulate vulgar speech, they also pointed to things in the agreement that everybody who's on the cheerleading squad signs, which commits to not casting in a bad light the team, including you know proper behavior on the internet. This is all something that she signs off on as part of her agreement when she when she joined the squad. So the school pointed to that. We have an agreement. You violated the agreement. You sort of waived any right you had. Plus, we have an authority because this is vulgar speech. We're allowed to punish it. Ultimately, the, the Third Circuit, so the district court found a violation, and then the Third Circuit found a violation of her First Amendment rights. And they found uh, that she had not waived her rights, basically that there, you know, there could be conditions associated with extracurriculars, but they couldn't waive her basic right to speak outside the school. Third Circuit said this is clearly out of school speech, not in school, on a Saturday to friends, and that therefore the school's authority to regulate speech did not extend to the SNAP. There were two judges that held that school doesn't have authority at all. The tinker standard, the basic standard doesn't apply. The third judge agreed that it was uh, that she had a First Amendment right that was violated. But the third judge said, we don't have to decide, you know, if tinker did apply, this is clearly not disruption. So she'd still be protected. So we don't have to decide that bigger question of whether tinker applies. The Supreme Court granted cert to address the, the question presented is whether tinker applies to this kind of speech. That's all incredibly helpful. Thank you for all of that. But I guess it sort of begs the question, how did we get here? You know, in the last episode, we talked a lot about the previous cases, but we really focused on the details of the events and the facts in a vacuum and didn't touch all that much on the interaction between the cases or attempting to look at a holistic view of student speech rights generally. So I was wondering, is there some sort of broader theme that connects all these cases and this newest one in your eyes? How should we be looking at student speech rights as they transform throughout history? That is really the tricky question. And if you look at Morse, which is the, the most recent decision, I think many of the justices indicate their own sense that there's no coherent doctrine. Thomas says something like students have speech rights, except when they don't. And I mean, I think he really has a point. I don't like where he wants to go with that, which is why don't we just get rid of the whole thing? The students don't need speech rights at all. But there is a way in which the problem was created because Tinker was thought to be the rule that was going to control, right? Students can speak unless they cause a material substantial disruption, or maybe it's another category, invade the rights of others. That's a kind of complicated other possible exception. But that was that was the rule stated in Tinker. And the cases that followed were originally litigated as why there is or isn't a right under Tinker, I should say. And in each of the cases that followed, the court said, you know, Tinker plus. So, you know, in the, in the, I call it Bethel too, like you, but I, the court always calls it Fraser. I'm trying to discipline myself. So in Fraser, the court says, you know, the, the lower courts were all about, is it a disruption or not? When this guy stands up and gives this vulgar speech as a way of endorsing his friend for the vice presidential election in their school. And the, the Supreme Court says, we don't need to figure out if it's a disruption or not, because there's a separate valid concern of a school to sort of teach civility. And uh, that means they can prohibit 
speech that is vulgar and extremely offensive. And there are a lot of, you know, that's a potentially very dangerous ruling because it could reach very far. Some people think it's meant to be understood very narrowly, just sexualized speech. And so that sort of opened up that potential can of worms. And then in the Hazelwood case, of course, that case is about a school newspaper. The court said, we don't need to worry about Tinker here because it's it's school-sponsored speech. And they define, you know, what they mean by school-sponsored speech and then set up a much more lenient rule um, in that context. And then along comes Morse. And is this school-sponsored speech? It's kind of like a field trip, except the kids are just standing outside. No, no, says uh, Roberts, I think very comfortingly. He says there's no school-sponsored speech because there's no way anybody would be confused and think that that banner, you know, a bong hits for Jesus unfurled by the student could possibly be understood like to be endorsed by the school. So no school, because and, and I was very heartened to see that Robert thinks that that's required. I do too, under Hazelwood. So it's not school-sponsored. So that special rule doesn't apply. And you can't really say it's disruptive. So that rule doesn't apply. And it's not really, you know, vulgar. So that rule doesn't apply. But it might be read to endorse illegal conduct, particularly drug use, which we've said in a lot of cases, says the court, are a special concern of the school. So we'll carve out this other little exception, which is, by the way, clearly a viewpoint discriminatory. <laughs> You're allowed to say whatever you want in favor of, you know, how, how bad drugs are for you. But if you say something that might look like you're endorsing illegal drug use, the school can say you can't do it, right? And so the worry, and Thomas says this, but I think you can see this in the Roberts working through of the cases as well for the majority in Morris is it's a real patchwork. And what is, you know, what is going to keep us from just coming up with another rule if something comes along and it seems problematic, but it doesn't qualify as disruptive under Tinker. So, I mean, I would say jumping into the Mahanoi case, one thing that's kind of comforting to me is that this seems to be framed in terms of Tinker's application or not, right? The district wanted to argue this as a, as a Fraser case. We don't need to argue disruption. As a matter of fact, they probably weren't sure they could argue disruption, but it was vulgar. You know, I don't know how you edit this, but she says fuck four times in a very short phrase. And that is clearly a word the school in the school setting, you know, the Fraser rule is allowed to say you just can't say. And it would be much more concerning, I think, to extend the reach of the school over sort of teaching civility, you know, to the speech of students on social media. So in some ways, it's comforting that this is just a battle about Tinker. I mean, I think to the extent Tinker has been applied, sure, there are exceptions. Sure, there are schools that will call anything disruption, but it actually has had a lot of disciplining effect where Tinker applies. So that's, you know, possibly a a comfort. So it seems like, based on your answer there, that the court's been whittling down a Tinker basically since its inception, that every new case brings in a new exception to the original Tinker rule. Is there a threat that this Mahanoy case will whittle down Tinker any further? And what would be the implications of that? So I'd say that there's, there are two different ways you can mean whittling down. And, and worrisome for me is putting Tinker in a smaller and smaller box and saying the school has all kinds of authority to regulate speech, even if it would fail the Tinker test. So again, sort of at the time that Tinker was decided, if the world had been controlled just by Tinker, this idea of limiting this, the school's ability to intervene to circumstances where there's substantial material disruption is an important limiting principle. And as you know, as I said, you know, yeah, schools will say anything, but the but the courts are pretty darn clear, I think, and certainly when it gets up to the courts of appeals, that disruption as the Tinker Court made clear, can't mean anything that makes anybody comfortable, can't mean anything that slightly takes the school sort of off off script. It has to mean, you know, disorder. It has to mean danger. It has to mean serious disruption to education. So I, I don't see a lot of evidence that when Tinker is applied, it's been whittled down much. And I think there's I'm hopeful that that that, that the Tinker standard will be preserved. So the issue is much more, in my mind, 
the sort of all these add-ons that go around Tinker altogether. I think the court, I'm sort of jumping ahead a little bit, but I think the court is going to find the ability to, for the school to reach at least some, I'm going to call it online speech. It's really hard to know what to call it, by the way. Part of this is the problem is it's like, if you call it off-campus speech, it seems more clearly beyond the school's jurisdiction. But we all recognize how integrated our, our real and internet worlds are now and how fictitious some of these lines are. And I, you know, if we didn't know it before, since we've all been, you know, watching our children go to school on Zoom, you know, the idea that there is this space with that, I love, you know, it has a gate because <laughs> it's a schoolhouse gate. And it's, you know, it's it sounds so defined and distinct. And of course, you know, that's as far as the school reaches. Well, well, wait a second, we're not in that world at all anymore. And so I think there is, and I'm sure the court's going to say something about this. They're just going to really, they're going to push back on the idea that there isn't even a meaningful clear distinction anymore between on and off campus. And, and I, I think there's something really something to that. I mean, the Third Circuit tried to get around that by coming up with a way of defining how to call this off campus, but it was somewhat problematic. And the one judge who didn't go along on the Third Circuit particularly noted that. It's like, that's another, you know, you're not admitting that that's its own can of worms. And the Third Circuit tried to walk around threats of, of violence and, you know, possible sort of words associated with harassment. And it wasn't, you know, there, I think there is a way that that can be done, but wasn't clearly articulated how that really fit in with what they were otherwise saying about on campus and off campus. So I think it's, you know, we're, we're in a world where that is increasingly fictional distinction. So I'm very sympathetic you know, I think the court will say that the school can reach at least some of this speech. And then the question will be how much the court is going to anticipate how it might be limited. So one way they surely will address is does Tinker apply or not? That suggests some limits. Is the court going to say anything about whether Fraser also applies? I, you know, I think they could just stay away from that because that's not the question presented, but it is presented by the facts in the following sense. I think it's hard to make the case for disruption here. That's what you know, Judge Ambrose said in his concurrence. But if Frazier applied, it pretty clearly violates the Frazier rule of sort of speaking, you know, using vulgarity. So will the court think it has to sort of say anything about Frazier? I don't know. I'd be more comfortable with a rule that's limited to Tinker. I'd also be more comfortable with a rule with clarity about repeating the idea that disruption really means something serious. It doesn't just mean that people are visibly upset. If you look at the... Um, the the opinion it talks about you know students being visibly upset you know that's not disruption one of the things that makes this case also somewhat harder though is that it's in the context of an extracurricular and particularly athletic and i'm not sure how much the court is going to feel like it needs to get into that there's concern that in the context of team sports the students are asked to agree to a lot of conditions that as to be part of a team and 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 you know the importance that that goes with with particularly competitive context and that sort of thing arguably that expands the definition of disruption. It's like it takes less to disrupt in the extracurricular, particularly the athletic context. I don't know how much the court is going to get into that. That also makes me nervous. I mean, a remarkable number of the lower court cases, if you look at them, are athletes complaining about coaches. And, you know, I I can't claim to be much of an athlete myself, so I, I really can't weigh in too much on this. But it's, you know, I... I am a firm believer that when we're thinking about the value of speech for students, we think about where where are they? Where where does speech matter to them? And the student in this case just seems like she was angry and kind of venting. But there's there's some student athletes who are really 
have a, you know, they articulate concerns about their coaches, which are the kind of thing that you would say might be legitimate concerns. And I, I would be troubled if disruption is, is defined very, very broadly in the athletic context because of this idea that you need this cohesion or that because students sign on, they agree to all these terms and they can sort of waive whatever rights they would otherwise have. I think that's troubling, troubling as well. How should we think about student speech rights in light of the developed nature of speech generally? That is with the advent of social media and instant communication, and with these concepts never having been addressed by the court in this context before, have these technological changes and these added intricacies changed what it means to, say, cause a disruption or change the bounds of what speech is and isn't permitted? I mean, I think it does in in, in many ways. I'm, I'm sure I can't think of them all, but yes, I think it really has changed. So one example is that speech just reaches so much further, right? So you have an upset teenager going to the mall with her friends on a Saturday who doesn't have social media. She's talking to her three friends. She may say all that she said on her Snapchat and worse. And one of them might even, you know, pass it on. But, but the idea is that the real world encumbers speech in a way that is helpful to the extent that we're worried about that things getting out of control. The other thing is, there seems to be somewhat of a sort of generational distinctions about sort of what is anticipated to be shared by home. There needs to be education and updating about this, you know, to the extent that courts are exploring, lower courts are exploring standards where they're sort of holding students accountable for speech that is, you know, foreseeably could get to the school. What does that mean? I mean, it seems like everything that's posted, someone could do a screenshot. So is that foreseeable? Is that enough? Do we want to impose obligations on students who engage in speech on social media that they don't intend to share with the school that they should, they need, you know, take some kind of affirmative steps? If they do, do we protect them because they've made some efforts? And if somebody else kind of misbehaves by sharing that speech, I mean, this is, I think, pretty outlandish and unlikely, but you could imagine sort of shifting some of the responsibility from the student who make some effort to keep it just among friends to the person who brings it to school. In some of these cases, why isn't that the person who is getting possibly punished? They're the one who are sort of saying, oh, I want this to be part of the school. At least I want to stir the pot. Now, obviously, in the context of of social media posts that threaten danger, you would say, no, it's just the responsibility of students to make people aware. And it's probably worth noting sort of a disclaimer, not always justified under the same doctrine, I think all the lower courts are willing to say if there is sort of indication of sort of threats of violence on social media, it is appropriate for the school to respond. Third Circuit just sort of acknowledges that's a separate area. Other circuits have used those cases to say there has to be some opportunity for the school to intervene. And the criticism there is sometimes they sort of start with a threat case. And the next thing you know, they're applying the same standard to circumstances that have nothing to do with, with threat. I did note that the... Um, the respondent's brief, so the student's brief, makes the argument that a lot of the speech that, that is of concern and sort of seems most obviously subject to regulation is basically, you know, we evidence scholars would like to say verbal act. The idea is it's, it's speech integral to conduct. And the idea is harassment is illegal. If you use words to harass, it's still illegal. You can regulate that speech and that speech is not protected, right? A speech that threatens can also be regulated. So the idea is, that, you know, some of these categories qualify as verbal conduct and could be so regulated. And I think that's part of what the, the respondents are arguing here. But some of the speech that is controversial does not fall into these clear illegal categories. And I think, you know, the category of, you know, for example, racist speech, which is not targeted at an, at an individual, but is very likely 
to have an impact on students in the school and an impact schools are taking seriously, very concerned about how to address that speech. If, if Tinker applied, it would ask, is this leading to disruption? And then um, that would be the way the school doctrinally could address the speech. Tinker doesn't apply, not clear what the handle would be for addressing that kind of speech. Even if Tinker does apply, it's limited. There's still issues of like, what about this offensive, racist, bigoted speech that doesn't create a disruption? It just makes people unhappy. That, that's that's an issue left open by Tinker that I think the courts have not well re- addressed. I want to touch on some of the gaps and problems with the student speech case doctrine in just a little bit. But you mentioned one that's quite salient in this case, so I thought we'd dig into it now. That is, how should we be dealing with the distinction of students who bring instances of online speech into school versus the student who initially made that online speech, assuming that those are two different people? Just that thought leads to a bunch of fascinating hypotheticals. And I think the Third Circuit tried to address this concept at a high level, but didn't really flesh out the details. But drawing a distinction between the original poster and the person who brings the speech onto school grounds seems like a pragmatic idea. Otherwise, we may sort of embolden this heckler veto problem that's instilled with Tinker. Like student X makes a Facebook post and student Y, who holds a minority viewpoint, doesn't like the message, so they print out a bunch of copies of student X's post and go to school and starts yelling around and shouting the hallway, can you believe what student X said? They're the one who's creating the disruption there, so should they be the one who gets punished or the person who makes the speech itself? Could online speech exacerbate this heckler's veto problem in these cases, or is it something we really shouldn't be that concerned about? No, it's it's an interesting question. I mean, the respondent actually concedes that Tinker allows the heckler's veto. So, which which I, I think is the most straightforward reading of Tinker, which is, you know, even if only one kind of speech inspires this kind of disruption, you, the school can say, okay, therefore, like the suggestion is if those black armbands had caused true disruption, it would have been appropriate for the school to particularly regulate the wearing of the black armbands. So I think in the school context, there's room for the heckler's veto, but your question is, is this somehow giving sort of empowering the heckler in a, in a different kind of way? And I think that's an interesting question. I mean, I, I do think it's it's of a piece of this general question of, you know, sort of the extent to which we want to hold the individuals who actually, you know, light the fire uh, responsible rather than the person who made the original speech. I mean, if you take it, make it more extreme. I mean, this in this particular case, I think she Snapchatted her 250 closest friends. So it's not exactly a tiny world. But, you know, you sometimes there are examples where someone is very much trying to control it. So, you know, exercises control so that the speech only goes to four or five people. And then with an understanding, it's meant to be kept confidential. And then one of those people decides they want to pass it on, you know, do a, do a screenshot and pass it on. And I think in those circumstances, I guess I would say at least the original speaker should be protected. This goes into sort of what what it takes, you know, to say that some online speech is irregulable doesn't mean all online speech is regulable. And I want to say a little bit more about that. But the second step is, you know, should there be any kind of, would there be circumstances where you would say it would be appropriate to punish the the person who, who you know, actually lit the fire? So all the other circuits, except for the third circuit, at one way or another, have sort of played around with how could you, you know, saying, sure, Tinker applies in some context, but how do we limit? And classically, some kind of a foreseeability test is that, you know, the student can foresee that the speech will get to school. And then, you know, kind of all the problems of how we, how we think about that in this age of social media. The respondent in this case seems to say, like, if you're going to do Tinker, it should only be 
if the student intends a disruption with a speech, that would be even more narrow, right? Um, and I think that the court will get into the business of trying to figure out sort of, again, I think they're going to say there's some application of tinker, and then it's going to be what are the limits of the speech of students on social media that qualify it? It'll, it'll be some kind of a, a test that is looking at the linkage between the speech and the school. And, you know, some, some circuits have tried to keep it not about foreseeability and just about the sort of content, it's the sort of school content. That's, I think, really difficult to do is sort of these cases never come up if it isn't in some sense about the school, school people usually. But, uh, you know, the other efforts are all about making some kind of link intent, some level of intent, some level of foreseeability about, you know, the content getting to or causing some kind of an issue with the school. I think the court will probably say some things about how to limit the online speech that is regulable by, by the school. Yeah. And I can see going back to what you mentioned earlier, there could be a bit of a convoluted test like, okay, the student made a post, but was there social media on private or was it on public? Was the message sort of an open decree or was it clearly intended to go to one person and be a private discussion? Maybe we'll get to the point where students will have disclaimers on their tweets and Facebook posts to say, this wasn't intended to go back to the school. No, I don't think that would be a terrible thing. I mean, if we really could, I mean, I, I recognize how complicated the world is and so it may be unrealistic, but if the result of the decision in this case is that students learned that they had to take certain steps that it was realistic for them to take, but they would have to take them and that that would make a difference. That kind of seems like it would be not so bad. You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't mind looking at behavior of, you know, kids these days, I'd say they're pretty fast and loose with sharing information. It's not just about whether the school can punish you. It's just about taking account of where your, where your language, where your words, where your speech may go. So if there could be a rule that you know, could be readily implemented so it didn't end up being unfair to students. That kind of seems like a that wouldn't be such a bad rule. You know, you, if you want to keep this private, here's what you need to do. These are the kinds of things you need to do. Now, I'm sure whatever else happens as opinion, we're going to see justices, you know, doing their best to look like they have a clue about the world of social media. And, you know, that's good for them. They'll, they will lean on their clerks and then their clerks won't know as much as maybe the clerks think they do about how it goes down and, you know, in high school, but, but that's, you know, that's going to be part of the challenge. They're going to be talking about something that of course they're all going to recognize is how, how central and how important it is, but about which they're not particularly fluent. I'm sure there are lots of amici brief and the like to try to help them with their fluency. Yeah. I was just thinking about that angle as well. Although the court does this all the time, how problematic, if at all, is it that the court is addressing one, a new area of technology, and two, trying to make a rule that applies to minor students who theoretically are far removed from themselves. Is it a problem that the court is diving into such fine-grained issues? Uh, good question. I think it's one of the reasons they waited so long. You know, this has been percolating for a while, and the lower courts have been saying, we don't really know what to do. We're doing our best, but the Supreme Court hasn't told us anything. So I think they felt like they waited as long as they could. And they waited while there was a lot of difference among the circuits, but they were all kind of roughly, you know, kind of coming about it in a very rough way, the same way, different doctrine kind of getting to roughly the same result. The third circuit was really the outlier. And I think that's why, you know, passage of time and the third circuit being a somewhat stark outlier is uh, what led them to take this case. What it counsels is that they should not say more than they have to. Right. I mean, this is a kind of case where they should decide my view. And I, I have some hope that they'll do this, that they'll they will recognize 
that this is new uncharted territory. They will try to do the minimum that kind of helps settles, you know, what is the lower court, what are the lower courts sort of need to do to know is some kind of basic guideposts. And then they'll let it percolate some more. That would be the best result, right? I hope they don't feel like they have to like all these other issues that, you know, potentially could be addressed in the same case. You know, I hope they don't, because I think that there's much to be learned. I, I think it was time for them to weigh in. They they will be aware that they have to be careful about what they know and what they don't know. But but then, yeah, the hope is that they don't say, say more than they need to so that there can then be more much more learning. We've been touching on this throughout the podcast, but how should we be thinking about this issue? It really seems like a line drawing problem. Like the court is likely going to find that Tinker applies to some extent. But to what extent schools can regulate off-campus speech is up in the air at the moment. In my eyes, I'm concerned about a rule that will allow the school to regulate speech to such an extent that it chills student expression or student speech generally, or overreaches and punishes innocuous speech. And because filing a suit is so burdensome, the school could really get away with this overreach. But at the same time, I'm very worried about things like cyberbullying, or attacks on students or groups of students, and this behavior not being remedied by people at home or the community, so the victims left to just suffer without school intervention. Not to say that you have the answer about what the line should be, but how should we think about this line drawing problem in the first place? And I think you tracked onto this earlier when you mentioned that the rule should be narrow and sort of waiting to see what the implications of a narrow rule are. Yeah, so there there are a couple pieces to that. One is sort of what kinds of online speech would be subject. I, I sort of acknowledge that some of those some of those categories of speech you're talking about are problematic even when you're on school grounds. We're talking about harassment that qualifies as a violation of law. The school not only can but is obligated in many cases to intercede. When we're talking about you know threats of violence, same thing. Bullying is is a little more complicated, but the idea of targeted attack on an individual student, I think, is going to be recognized as regulable against with this verbal conduct, uh, appropriately regulable. Those are issues, whether they're on grounds or off grounds, that there's sort of a limit in how far they reach. And you know, part of the concern would be you don't sort of want the online speech to, to somehow be sort of covered more broadly than the in-school speech. So that's an issue that the courts are sort of struggling with, you know, how much speech that makes students feel you know, really uncomfortable going to school, like sort of anti-gay speech. It's not about any particular person. So it doesn't fall as bullying and it doesn't fall into the harassment category, but it still for some students sort of profoundly affects their comfort of going to school. It seems like, you know, the schools want to be able to regulate that. And there's some question about whether they can on or off campus under Tinker. So I sort of want to first acknowledge that your concern, which is a valid and very important concern that schools are struggling with, is not just about online speech. It's about sort of speech, student speech in, in, in general and the limits of how far the, the courts can, can reach. But I guess, I mean, I would say to the extent that there's a huge online component, a lot of bullying speech is online speech. And, you know, parents may not even know it's happening. That's part of the sort of the, the nature of the online forum. But I like rules that are t- associated with you know, how foreseeable it is that it'll get to school. And that, again, I would really like a rule that said if students make affirmative efforts to keep the speech within a small group, that that should not be reachable. That that seems like a, you know, an appropriate line to draw. Again, I'm not sure, you know, how practical it is. It seems like it might be one of those things that would take some time before you sort of develop rules, but maybe you could develop rules that students would understand. But that seems to me as a way of keeping the reach potentially smaller. But I think you're right. The concern is a line drawing concern. 
Tinker has provided a decent amount of protection when Tinker applies. So the hope is that even if the court does something very broad in terms of sweeping in a lot of online speech, that limiting the application to, okay, so Tinker, so it has to be disruption, will still do a fair amount to hold the line. That's the hope, that they, they, they take the broadest approach to what kind of online speech is covered, but they won't also be walking back the, the pretty darn narrow rule of the Tinker exception. Should we be reading much into the court taking this particular case? The Third Circuit is the first court to say that Tinker does not apply to online off-campus speech, but several circuits have found the opposite conclusion. Is that a bad sign for the student? Conventional wisdom is if they take cert, you should feel happier if they're the petitioner than the respondent, sort of general general idea of the looking in the tea leaves. But for, for me, I think it's likely that the Third Circuit's going to get reversed just because of what the Third Circuit's position is, not, oh, what are we learning from the fact that they granted cert? Sure. I mean, it's, I think if all the justices thought the Third Circuit got it right, you know, they wouldn't have thought this was the case to take. But I think it's more just, it's more predictable that they're going to reverse because I, I think this is... I think they're going to think it's an untenable rule that there can be no reach in cases like this to the speech in this world where it's really hard to even draw the line between on and off campus. It's interesting. I'll say one thing. Alito actually has some student speech protecting history in the Third Circuit. You know, the the Third Circuit's kind of been out there on a lot of these issues, and uh, Alito has been part of that. Little interesting to wonder what he's going to do. It's also interesting to wonder what what Thomas is going to do. On the one hand, as you've acknowledged, he's ha- he would be happy to get rid of Tinker altogether. But the reason he'd be happy to get rid of Tinker altogether is he thinks you know he's still thinking in the 18th century form about in loco parentis, and this is really about sort of a delegation from the parents. And the parents he wants to give a lot of authority to parents, so it's possible that he would consider this you know, an overreach because the school is only there sort of by kind of theoretical delegation from the parents. And this is the territory that is classically controlled by the parents. So, you know, there, there's some, there's some, I'm, I'm looking forward to the argument. I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing particularly what Thomas and Alito, frankly, have to say. Thank you, Professor Buss. And thank you for listening to season four of Briefly. It's been such a joy to work on this amazing project. So from all of our online editors, Ty, Miriam, Deb, Justin, Nathan, and our executive online editor, Matthew, thank you. Season 5 Briefly is on the way, but in the meantime, follow us on Twitter at Elrev and like us on Facebook. You can find more episodes of Briefly on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts.